you. First Kings chapter 22 this evening. And if you're with us here tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now and they have some Bibles and just wave and get their attention. They'll get one into your hands and you can follow along with us with not only your ears, but also with your eyes. Well, we come tonight to the end of uh, King Ahab's reign over the northern kingdom of Israel. He was the most uh, wicked, uh, vile king that Israel had ever had up to that point. Unfortunately, others are going to follow him who will be equally as bad and even worse. But Ahab is who we look at this evening. Now, three years passed without war between Syria and Israel. And so after the battle of Aphek, where that war that happened uh, between uh, Ben-Hadad and, and uh, Syria and all of that, and, and uh, Ahab let him off when God had uh, set him aside to be destroyed in that battle. But they had a period of peace for three years following it. And it came to pass in the third year that Jehoshaphat, who was the king of Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah, he went down to visit the king of Israel. And it's interesting, you look and say, well, he's in the southern kingdom of Judah. Why didn't he go up to Israel? You know, you think of in terms of the equator and up and down. Always when you read whether someone went up or they went down, it's always in relationship to Jerusalem. And Jehoshaphat was reigning in the southern kingdom of, of Judah in Jerusalem. And because Jerusalem... Had, is at a very high elevation to depart from there and go literally anywhere in Israel was to go down to that place. And so he went down even in going to the north to visit uh, the king of, of Israel in the north. And the king of Israel made a proposal and he said to his servants, Do you not know that Ramoth and Gilead is ours, but we hesitate to take it out of the hand of the king of Syria. And so he said to Jehoshaphat, will you go with me to fight at Ramoth Gilead? Now, uh, unfortunately, Jehoshaphat and Ahab are united at this point in marriage. Uh, one of the sons of Jehoshaphat has married one of the daughters of Ahab. And it, and, uh, was a really bad move for Jehoshaphat to be a part of that. We're going to talk about that maybe a little bit later. But they were united in marriage, and so he, uh, probably in relationship to that, he goes up and is cordial with this evil king in the north. What is happening here, though, in this scene is, is again, as we'll see later, so much we'll see later. But um, the whole thing is a setup. Uh, king Ahab wants to go to war with the Syrians. He wants to take back this city. But he lacks the military. He lacks enough uh, soldiers to be able to do that. We know in Second Chronicles that during uh, Jehoshaphat's reign in the southern kingdom of Judah, that they had a very, very significant army, well over 1.1 million standing army in, in Judah. And so here is, Jeho here is Ahab needing military force to obtain his objective. And so now he's, he's trying to sell uh, Jehoshaphat on this idea of going uh, into battle to fight at Ramoth-Gilead. Now, the city of Ramoth was one of the chief cities that was given to the tribe of Gad when uh, the children of Israel were conquering the promised land. Remember, uh, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh settled on the east side of the Jordan River. They didn't want their portion in uh, uh, Canaan because they liked the land was good for farming and good for cattle and that kind of thing. And so they said, no, we'll settle in here. So this city had initially been allotted to the children of Israel, though it, it, it is today in what is modern-day Jordan. And so... Uh, the, he, he looks at it and says, we ought to be able to take that city back. It was given by God to the children of Israel. And so, will you go with me to fight at Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are. He was not. Jehoshaphat was nothing like Ahab. 
Ahab was a monster. Jehoshaphat was a good and godly king. This isn't the hour for uh, political correctness or for false humility as people who walk with God, who love God, who are not perfect, but we're on a different path than the world is on. We love a different God. Our objectives are entirely different. There's nothing wrong with making a stand, and Jehoshaphat should have made a stand. He shouldn't have said this. Better to say nothing than to say this. We are not like the rest of the world any more than Jehoshaphat was like Ahab. And he's trying to pacify him in this way. And Jehoshaphat said, I am as you are, and it wasn't true. My people are as your people. They shouldn't have been, and my horses as your horses. And so Jehoshaphat agrees now to join in on the battle. And he is, as we'll see, developed a little bit more in Second Chronicles, a very, very good king, one of the best kings Judah ever had, and a very godly king, but he should have never, ever aligned himself with Ahab in any undertaking, any undertaking, not in business, not in politics, not in military, not religious, not in any way. There's a saying that I've heard ever since I was a kid, and the phrase is jumping Jehoshaphat. I went online to Google it just to find out what the origin of it was, and nobody's decisive on where it comes from. I think it's a perfect description of the Jehoshaphat of the Bible. He was a good man. He's a good king. But one of his, despite that, being a good king and being one of the godliest kings in Judah's history, he had a very, very bad habit of making a decision and then praying about it rather than praying first and then making a decision. He was constantly jumping, getting out ahead of the Lord, even what he knew God's will to be over and over and over again in his life and in his ministry. And one sure way... To find ourselves in deep trouble all of the time is to make decisions and then pray afterwards rather than praying first and then making the decision. And that was the characteristic of his life. And so he says, sure, count me in everything I, and everything that I have and I rule over. We're with you on this. And also, Jeho Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, please inquire. For the word of the Lord today. Well, a little better late than never. But he ought to have inquired what the will of the Lord was concerning aligning himself in that battle before he made the decision. So here you have this making the decision. And then, boy, we ought to ask God what he has to say uh, about this and this proposed campaign that you've uh, put out in front of me. And, of course, with Ahab, he doesn't care what God says about anything. But the will of God was important to, to jo Jehoshaphat. And, and so to satisfy Jehoshaphat, uh, Ahab then calls for 400 prophets to come together to make the mind of the Lord known in this expedition. And so he gathered uh, together the prophets, about 400 men. And, the, and they surely they weren't uh, prophets of Baal. They weren't prophets of uh, Ashereth because... Uh, Jehoshaphat would have never accepted any revelation from them. So these are false prophets. These are prophets who claim to be to represent the Lord, but they were also heavily invested in the calf worship that had been introduced by Jeroboam. The other problem with these 400 prophets is that because they were because of the way the whole system was set up in the north in the north in Israel, all of these guys were appointed by the king and they were on the government payroll or on the king's payroll. And so they know how the whole thing works. We got a king that isn't really interested in hearing what God has to say as if they could come up with that anyway and that God would use them. 
And so all he wants to hear is good news. And so all Ahab ever heard from these guys was good news because they were each of them in one another's pockets financially. And so he brings them together and he asks them, shall I go against Ramoth Gilead uh, to fight or shall I refrain? And so they said, go up for the Lord will deliver it into the hand of the king. And so their response was uh, very excited. You're going to have the victory. Don't hesitate. Here you go. And Jehoshaphat said, uh, is there not still a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? So he hesitates in verse five because he's not sure now what he's put himself in the middle of. And despite the prophecy of 400 prophets, this isn't sitting right with him. And so he asks, is there any other prophet of the Lord around here that we, you know, one more that we can ask the, the will of the Lord concerning all of this? And uh, because he's he's hesitant here, he doesn't doesn't feel right to him what's going on right now. And so the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, well, there's this one guy, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, by whom we, we may inquire of the Lord. So he acknowledges that he's a true prophet of the Lord. But I hate him. And then he gives the reason. Because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. And evidently, it's never occurred to Ahab that the reason that Micaiah never said, had anything good to say about Ahab was because there was nothing good about Ahab to say something good about. So here you have a guy that wants to live a wicked life, but hear good messages and positive messages from God. And, uh, and he didn't get that out of this kind uh, of a man. He, he heard what God wanted him to say. And, of course, Ahab didn't hear, hear anything good from the Lord because of his wickedness. And Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say such things. So he, he rebukes Ahab here for having that kind of an attitude toward uh, one that he considers to be a prophet of the Lord. But Jehoshaphat's doing a little bit more. That he's, he's being very polite, but he's insisting that Micaiah be brought into the presence of the kings. So he's saying, he's not just saying, oh, you shouldn't say that. He's saying, you shouldn't say that, and I'm not withdrawing my request to have that prophet brought out before me. And, uh, and so the, um, the king then called an officer, said, bring Micaiah, the son of Imlah, Quickly, And so he he recognizes that in order for him to get that one point one million troops, he's going to have to do this. And so he has Micaiah sent for and the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, having put on their royal robes, they each sat on a throne at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria, the capital of of Israel and all the prophets. Apparently, during the absence to go get Micaiah, they continued to prophesy before them. And Zedekiah, this is a, a guy that's uh, made for the arts. Uh, he's the son of uh, Chena'ana, and he made horns of iron for himself and said, Thus says the Lord, with these you shall gore the Syrians until they're destroyed. So he starts to prophesy victory related to the battle. He's got these horns and he's pretending how, uh, you know, they're going to be like a, a, a defenseless man before, you know, an ox with these horns. There's only one thing worse than a false prophet, and that's a false prophet with props. And this is what we've got right here. But it's probably mesmerizing to watch. I mean, he's got a positive message. He's fascinating. He's got this whole presentation, the whole thing. Sometimes I watch Christian television. I'm not, I'm not criticizing all of it. But and I'm talking about some of it that is called Christian television, and it's not Christian television. And it's absolutely mesmerizing. I mean, the personality and the talent to hold the crowd and the props and the, the lighting and the whole thing is amazing. The problem is everything that's being said is false. Is it's tested by the word of God. And so this was the prophecy that he was giving. And all of the prophets prophesied so, saying, go up to Ramoth Gilead and prosper for the Lord will deliver it into the king's hand. 
Then the messenger who had gone to call Micaiah spoke to him and said, now listen, the words of the prophets, here's what's going on upstairs. They're on one accord encouraging the king in what he wants to do. And so please let your word be like the word of one of them. And would you speak encouragement? Listen, they're having a great time up there. And if you're anything like your track record, you're going to spoil it for them. So can you just one time just be positive and go along and get along with with all of this is what everybody else has said. And sure, what they're saying is false and it's a bunch of nonsense. You know it and I know it because time and time again, they've prophesied in contradistinction to what you've prophesied, even to Ahab and what you have said has come to pass over and over again. So we know it's all phony baloney that's going on up there. But can't you just one time come in and go along with the crowd? That's the pressure we're all under as Christians. Just to shut up. Just to go along at the school or in the workplace or in the neighborhood, even in church sometimes. Discussions about the things of God, about eternity. Can't you just one time let people say all of the nonsense they're going to say without chiming in about what the Bible says about that? Everybody else is supposed to speak up, but God isn't supposed to have a voice in the United States of America in the year 2010. So this is the pressure that we live under as well. Just shut up and go along with what everybody else is doing. And then notice his response. He said, as the Lord lives, and he knew he did, and we do too, whatever the Lord says to me, that I will speak. He just throws that pressure off. Life is very, very simple for Micaiah. Whatever God tells me to say, whatever his word is in this situation, that's what I'm going to say. Whether it costs me my life or it puts me in hot water or it costs me my reputation, this is what I'm going to do. Now, there's a guy you can go to war with. I don't mean a physical war, a spiritual war. That's a leader, man or woman. And that, that kind of clarity with God, that kind of commitment to God. And sometimes in human history, and it was the case during Ahab, and it's the case about large parts of the world that we live in, all around the world today, a man or woman makes a stand like that. And they're going to end up not as the pastor of some big church or the head of some missionary organization. They'll end up in prison because of their unwillingness to compromise. That's exactly where he was. And then he came to the king and the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead or shall we refrain? Simple question. Micaiah answered and said, go and prosper, for the Lord will deliver it into the hand of the king. Now, evidently, he is mocking the voice and the message of the 400 prophets. So it's a sanctified sarcasm that he's using here. You don't want to hear the truth. You just want to hear what the 400 have told you. So and apparently he did this fairly frequently. So he he knew he wasn't going to be deceiving Ahab over this. So go and prosper. The Lord will deliver it into the hand of the king. This is what you want to hear. This is what they're all telling you. So go for it. And the king said to him, how many times shall I make you swear that you tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Apparently, he came in and did this fairly often. So how many times do I have to get you to swear to tell me the truth in the name of the Lord? And he recognized, I mean, it's a confession of what he's saying here, is that he recognizes that this man is a true prophet of God. He speaks for God. It's right out of his mouth. And then Micaiah, sanctified sarcasm or no... Now he gets down to business. And he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains. This is how the battle's going to go. They're going to be left like sheep with no shepherd. 
And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each return to his house in peace. They have understood exactly what was being said here. And basically what God is saying is that Ahab, you as the leader, the shepherd of this nation, you're going to die before this battle is over. For Ramoth Gilead, you will be dead. And when you're dead, the soldiers that you lead into battle are going to then retreat and return home. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? He's the victim. Some people can make themselves a victim in any circumstance. I knew he'd come and do this. I mean, this is the kind of thing that he's always doing to me. And so he's upset with it. And this is the track record that I have. And then Micaiah said, therefore, I saw the word of the Lord. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne. And all of the host of heaven, speaking of the angelic host, both Angels that haven't fallen, that are God's ministers, but also fallen angels were apparently present as well. They're all standing by on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, who will persuade Ahab to go up that he may fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one spoke in this manner and another spoke in that manner. And then a spirit came forward. And stood before the Lord, and it's clearly a demonic spirit, fallen angel. He came and stood before the Lord, and he said, I will persuade him. And the Lord just said to him, in what way? And so he said, I will go out and, being a, and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And the Lord said, you shall persuade him and also prevail. Go out and do so. Micaiah said, therefore, look, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these prophets of yours, and the Lord has declared disaster against you. Now, this revelation that Micaiah received, we don't know whether um, it was just kind of a vision that God had given to him or kind of a uh, a, 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 you know, whether it was something that actually was whether it was a vision that God had given to him of something that didn't happen, but he was giving him revelation in this way or whether it was something that actually happened in in uh, in, in heaven in a way to make the point very, very clear that God was going to be instrumental in the death of Ahab. And so the. 400 prophets, they spoke with a lying spirit to deceive and and uh, in order to lead Ahab to a disaster in the battle and to his death. Micaiah uh, spoke the truth. And then the Lord had apparently here allowed a lying spirit, again, a demon to speak through the 400 prophets as a means of bringing Ahab to his death. God never created evil. And he never created the demonic realm. The demonic realm occurred, came into being when some portion of the angels, there's a hint that as many as a third of them fell with Lucifer in his rebellion against the Lord and uh, joined him in that rebellion and became fallen angels, became uh, demons. And, And so the Lord didn't create that rebellion. He didn't create evil. He didn't create Lucifer in that way that that he was forced to fall. But here we have an example of how God can overrule something and make it serve his purposes. And the Lord declared to this evil spirit, you go forward, you're going to be successful because this is a man who doesn't want any contact with my truth. One of the problems with rejecting God's truth in this world is now all you're left with are lies. Take anything that God says in his word on any subject, on how we're to live, how we're to speak, how we're to conduct ourselves, how we're to process information, how anything, how we're to be saved, certainly. And to believe anything different than what his word says, which is the truth, is then to believe a lie. And so when a person's unwilling to believe the truth and all you have left to believe in are lies and a person is then completely set up to follow the lies that are they're brought into contact with. 
And that's going to be the case, the Bible says, in the world following the rapture of the church and into the great tribulation. Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica and he said, and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth, speaking of the Antichrist, and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not love. They did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. If you sit here tonight. You say, well, listen, I know that the rapture of the church is going to occur. I know enough about the Bible to know that I'm not ready to walk with God. I'll give my life and commit my life to the Lord once that occurs. Don't wait till then. A great and strong delusion will come upon the world at that time in which people will readily believe the lie that the Antichrist is the promised Christ. That today's the day of salvation. And so this great deception that occurs when a person rejects the truth. This is the crazy thing about watching our country, for example. And I can't talk about any other country. This is the one I live in. And we're on the wrong track at the moment. So there's not a lot to commend at the moment. But to watch the truth of God be thrown by the wayside. How God is being marginalized in the culture all the way out of public education and all of these different places and laws and rules now made in violation of God's word and all these kind of things that are happening. And then you watch the consequences of the abandoning of the truth for these lies and you look at the nation it produces, the lives that it produces, and you think to yourself, how in the world, why can't they see it? Because there's a delusion when people don't want to know the truth, they'll do anything to protect a lie and harbor it from any kind of of scrutiny. That's the kind of situation that we live in uh, today. Christianity gets to be scrutinized. And I say, good. One of the things that I love about the freedom in the United States of America and the prospering of the gospel, even in this community, I mean, even in this nation, anything goes in this nation. You can burn flags, you can burn Bibles, you can burn Korans, uh, but you can burn anything you want. You can offend anyone you want. You can blaspheme anyone you want. It's protected by by our rights. But you look at Christianity and how it thrives here, even as it's attacked and, and, and misrepresented and how much wealth and how much manpower and how much indoctrination and propaganda goes into turning people away from it. And God just continues to go marching on his way, saving people all over the city and all over the world every single day. So the strength of of the gospel, the strength of the word of God shines no matter in it. It's a testimony to the truthfulness of it, that it survives all of those attacks and wonderfully so. And Zedekiah, the son of that guy, he came near. To Micaiah, and he struck him on the cheek. And he said, Which way did the Spirit from the Lord go from me to speak to you? A public slap like that was a deep humiliation. And Micaiah said, Indeed, you shall go, you shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber. To hide. He doesn't get in a fight with this guy. Doesn't slap him back. When you know the truth and you're in the truth, you don't have to defend it in those ways. So he just looks and says, time will tell. You've said what you've said. I've said what I've said. I know what I've said is the truth from God. 
And you will know it's the truth from God when you are hiding in that place for your life at the death of your king and the defeat of your army. And so the king of Israel said, take Micaiah and return him to Amnon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son. And say, thus says the king, put this fellow in prison and feed him with bread of affliction and water of affliction. Give him just enough to stay alive until I come in peace. And Micaiah said, as a parting gift to the group, if you ever return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And then he turned to the crowd that was assembled there and he said, take heed, all you people. And gave them a final warning of the truth of what he had to say. Now, despite all of this tremendous drama that took place before King Ahab while he sat on his throne and King Jehoshaphat while he sat on his throne, Jehoshaphat goes into battle aligned with Ahab. Despite his unsettledness about joining with Ahab and despite hearing the truth of this prophet. It was a number of years ago I was reading through the Bible, this section of the Bible in my devotional life, and I never read in my devotional time, I never read for sermons. That's not what it's there for. It's just for the word to wash me and for me to enjoy my own personal relationship with the Lord. But as I was reading through this particular section of the Bible, the historical books, I noticed, number one, how few good kings there were. The northern kingdom of Israel never had one good king. The southern kingdom of Judah only had eight. And as I looked at each one of these eight men, I discovered that each one of them ended up falling, failing in some very significant way. They loved God. They were good kings. They brought revival to the southern kingdom of Judah. But each one of them fell except for one. And the reason that he didn't is very fascinating. But each one of them fell and marred their witness in some way. And this Jehoshaphat marred his witness, a great king, one of the best kings that Judah ever had. There's a few lessons from his life I want us just to learn this evening because all of us have a little bit of Jehoshaphat in us. Um, Some of us in the room tonight, we could just call you jumping. You're a spitting image of Jehoshaphat. One of the things that we learn from Jehoshaphat is the importance of avoiding ungodly alliances. He's a man who just got himself continually into trouble because he aligned himself with wicked people to to join with him in the accomplishing of certain things. He was a great guy, great guy, great guy. Maybe you are a great guy or a great gal, but he was a great guy who was careless in what he aligned himself with. And then as a result, what he aligned the whole nation with. God will not bless ungodly alliances, even if a man as good and as great as Jehoshaphat makes those kind of alliances. And so he was a great king, but he united himself in ministry with people who had God's judgment hanging over their head. God's exhortation to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, speaking about us coming out from among them, the wicked of the world, and being separate, not being unequally yoked with them. It's the same strong warning that we need to have. I think it's fascinating to notice that it was Ahab who approached Jehoshaphat. You and I, as Christians, as we just simply obey the word of God, There's a certain quality of life that ends up being produced. There is even a certain quality, not only of spiritual life, but very often a material life that is produced as a result of walking with the Lord. And that blessing upon our lives can make our lives very, very attractive by 
the wicked who will look at our lives. They want the blessings of our life, but they don't want to live obedient to the Lord, but they want to access that blessing. And so they'll try and attach themselves to us. And godly leaders need to be alert to that. And so do all Christians. The second thing that we learn from Jehoshaphat is the importance of learning to say no to people when it's difficult. Jehoshaphat was a king who just had a natural difficulty saying no to people. He just you read you read through him in this section, Second Chronicles, and you just realize this guy was just a super, super nice guy who found it really hard to say no to people that he desperately needed to say no to. And every Christian needs to learn to say no, even if it's hard for us and against our nature. If Jehoshaphat were a pastor, he'd be the kind of guy who would be this uncompromising dynamo in the pulpit. He could denounce this and denounce that and get rid of this and get rid of that. But he'd be the kind of guy that word would get out and there'd be the realization is, yes, he is that there. But if you can get him alone, what he'll denounce with fire and brimstone from a pulpit, he has very difficult time saying no to if you can get him one on one. And I'll tell you, there's lots of people like that. Struggles to say no face to face or personally. And sometimes nice guys, and we like nice guys and nice gals, but sometimes nice guys need to learn to say no to wicked people. Maybe even tonight. What wicked person, what ungodly person is creeping in and trying to gain influence into your life? And you know you should break that thing off. You know you should say no to that proposal that's been made. You know that you're getting cornered on this thing. And yet, thus far, you haven't said no. Well, let me make the decision for you. No. For some of us, it's just good to get up in the mirror, look in the mirror in the morning, and just practice saying no. We have so hard of a time doing it. The third thing that we learn from Jehoshaphat is that a Christian needs to recognize and resist manipulation, attempts that are being made to manipulate us. And this, he's the kind of leader that's very, very susceptible to manipulation. And he either has a very difficult time recognizing it or, or he has a difficult time responding to it properly. This whole thing with Ahab was a setup. Put you out in a public place, get you onto this platform, put you in your robe, put you on the throne, put you before a gigantic crowd, bring 400 prophets out, all of it to make it very difficult for Jehoshaphat to say no to Ahab concerning the proposal. Ahab's working this guy. He's manipulating this guy. The whole scene is all about that. There have been many times over the years where you know, not thousands of times, but many times where people have tried to use manipulation to try to get me to do something. And it's amazing the kind of pressure that they can try and put on you, rarely overtly, but it's just that subtle sense that they are working me into a corner here. I think all of us have a consciousness when we're in a situation where the difference between somebody is trying to do something for me in this situation and someone is trying to do something to me. You can walk into a church, sit down in a seat. The worship team comes out or the pastor comes out and immediately you can recognize these people are doing something for me. And then immediately all that can drop if their motivation, all the songs can be right, the sermon can be right, the whole everything. But if the motivation is to do something to me, to manipulate me, that becomes as apparent as that cross on the wall behind me. And so here is this attempt to manipulate. And I, I remember early in my service to the Lord when 
I stumbled really upon Gail Irwin's teaching on dealing with manipulators and really, really helped me through the years. Very. It's not that I was dealing with a lot of manipulators, but when they come, it's like I lose 10 pounds. And a manipulator is a person who tries to remove your ability to choose in a given situation. You just have this sense, I'm being trapped. They are removing my ability to say no to them with every sentence that they're speaking to me. And Gail said, and it was so powerful and liberating for me, and perhaps it will be for some of us tonight. He said that when he gets in that kind of situation, that he responds to people by saying, I sense that my freedom to choose is being taken away from me. And thus I must say no to you. And you just exit out of the situation where the manipulation is being uh, put upon us. And it's very, very helpful. Another great way to handle it is to say, thank you for talking to me. I'll pray about that. And then really pray about that. But any time I get in, somebody's trying to manipulate me or corner me into some kind of a thing, I realize that I'm a man under authority. I'm under the authority of God. It's not me that gets to make a decision on the basis of what you're proposing to me. I will take that to the one who's in charge around here and I'll ask him about it. Never be afraid to take any situation that you're being manipulated on and take that off of your shoulders and throw it on the shoulders of the God that's up the authority chain and at the top of the authority chain in our Christian life. And to say, thank you for that input. I'll take it to the Lord in prayer and to be brought out from under it. And again, we've already looked at how Jehoshaphat got that backwards in his life, saying yes and then praying. A fourth thing we learn from Jehoshaphat is the importance of not going against our peace as leaders. He just knows it's wrong. He just knows everything is wrong about this in his spirit. He even ultimately gets a word from God that it's wrong. But the thing just doesn't sit right. You know, there are some situations in life where something is happening and you can go right to the chapter and the verse that says that is OK or that is not OK in terms of a decision. And then there's other situations where you can go left, you can go right. There's freedom in the scriptures to do it. Or you can become involved with this person or not become involved with this person. And to look at the person, you say, biblically, I have the freedom to go either way on it. But one of the ways that the Lord uses to lead us is by his peace. And it's an important way that he leads us, where he will give us a uh, the Bible says that we walk in peace continually as Christians. And so we've got a fork in the road. And if I think about going down this fork in the road, getting involved in this situation or with this person, my peace with the Lord and my relationship with the Lord, the peace of the spirit in my life, it abides. It's uninterrupted. I look at going down this fork in the road and all of a sudden it's crumpled up like a piece of paper and gone. And what is the Lord doing? He is leading me by his peace. Colossians 3:15. Let the peace of God rule in your heart or umpire in your heart. Because God may not be able to tell you all of the reasons why he doesn't want you to take the left-hand path. There may be things about people or situations that he knows that are private. He's going to keep them to himself. He's not going to reveal everybody's underwear or everybody's, uh, you know, situation or their life and bring that out into public in order to uh, give us the information we need for every decision that we're going to make in life. It's enough that he says, I'm not giving you a piece to go in that direction. And God has done that with Jehoshaphat, and he disregards all of it. I was on a train in India many years ago, talking with a wonderful Christian man. We were talking about the things of the Lord. And I was asking him about things that he had learned through the years as a Christian and as a minister. And I'll never forget one of the things he said. He said, one thing I've learned is to never go against my peace. And, and I'll tell you, I, I feel the same way. I add my amen to it in my young age or however many years in the ministry. Every time I've gone against the peace of God, it's been a disaster. 
at least a small disaster that I've had to rebound back out of. And then finally, Jehoshaphat teaches us not to be afraid to admit when we're wrong. You ever made a wrong decision? I know you haven't. But there's churches in town that are full of people that have. No, we make wrong decisions. Try as we might not to. We make wrong decisions. And what's the old saying? God allows U-turns. He really does. And what he should have done is he should have just done a U-turn out of what he had, the decision that he had made. And, and those are important lessons to learn here from Jehoshaphat. Now, the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth-Gilead. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle. I'm not going to wear all these robes and everything like that. I'm going to look like a fighting man. But you put on your robes. And so the king of Israel disguised himself and he went into battle. Now, you can ascribe one of two motives they have here. Number one, you could say he's just a very brave man, wanted to fight and just wanted to get in there and swing a sword a little bit in a battle. Or number two, that he really believed the prophecy of the prophet that a king is going to die in this battle. And so he says to Jehoshaphat, why don't you wear all the robes and all that kind of king stuff into the battle? And and, uh, you know, maybe they'll mistake you. I'll let you come to your own conclusion. Now, the king of Syria had commanded the 32 captains of his chariot, saying, Fight with no one else, great or small. Don't focus on slaughtering these people or any. Just one guy we're after. That's the king of Israel. If we can get rid of him, the, taking care of Israel and the army and, and their attempt to take Ramoth Gilead, that'll be settled. And so it was when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat that they said, surely it's the king of Israel. Look at he's got that crown and all that. I mean, nobody but it's like a king. Nobody but a king looks like that in battle. And so they turned aside to fight against him and Jehoshaphat cried out. (laughs) Now we don't know what he cried out. Mom! He might have cried out to the Lord and just started praying out loud to the Lord to save him and then they realized that's not Ahab. He never prays. Got to be the wrong king. So he cries out. He knows he's dead. You ever been in a situation where you just know you're dead? God, if you get me out of this, Lord, would you please, please, would you please, please. Isn't it a miserable place to be? Josephat's in one of those places. That's why I say this is how to avoid it. It's a terrible place to be. So he cries out. And it happened when the captains of the chariot saw that it wasn't the king of Israel. We don't know why. That they turned back then from pursuing him. Thank you, Lord. Thank, thank you, Lord. Thank, thank you, thank you, thank you. You all recognize it. Now a certain man. Joe Bacicalupi. He drew a bow, part of the Syrian army, just drew a bow at random, which means he wasn't aiming at Ahab. He didn't look and say, oh, there's Ahab in disguise. I'm going to shoot right between the gaps in his armor and kill him. He just pulled out an arrow. He's just shooting arrows into people. That's all. He's just, uh, just shooting them off. Random. And he struck the king of Israel between the joints of his armor. And so Ahab said to the driver of his chariot, turn around and take me out of the battle, for I am wounded. He's worse than wounded. And the battle increased that day. And the king was propped up in his chariot. So he kept himself propped up in the chariot, pretending to be overseeing the battle, lest his soldiers would realize how serious his condition was and then flee in the battle. But he's he's bleeding out in that chariot at the moment. And while facing the Syrians, and he died at evening, and the blood ran out from the wound onto the floor of the chariot. And then as the sun was going down, a shout went out throughout the army, saying, Every man to his city, and every man to his own country. So just as Micaiah prophesied would occur, children of Israel now flee the armies, head back to their homes. And so the king died and was brought to Samaria. And they buried the king in Samaria. 
And then someone washed the chariot at the pool in Samaria, and they're washing out the blood from the bottom of it, and the dogs licked up his blood, just as Elijah had prophesied would occur, while the harlots bathed in that same pool, according to the word of the Lord which he had spoken. And now the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did, the ivory house which he built, and all the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? We talk about people living in an ivory palace. Oh, they live in an ivory palace, speaking of just like the ultimate of luxury. Well, Saul, uh, 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 Ahab, the, the house wasn't, it wasn't made of ivory. It was called the house of ivory because it contained so many furnishings, so many artifacts, so many uh, panels and and different things that were made of ivory inside of it. And so Ahab rested with his fathers. Then uh, uh, Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his place. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Asa, became king over Judah in the fourth year of Ahab, king of Israel. And Jehoshaphat was 35 years old when he became king. And he reigned 25 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Azuba. And he walked all, and he walked in all the ways of his father Asa, who, which was a, who was a very great king. And he did not turn aside from them, doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away, for the Lord, for the people offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. And also Jehoshaphat made peace with the king of Israel, as we've seen a mistake. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoshaphat, the might that he showed and how he made war, they're not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah. And the rest of the perverted persons who remained in, uh, in the days of his father Asa, then Jehoshaphat, his son, banished them from the land. And there was then no king in Edom, only a deputy of the king. And Jehoshaphat made merchant ships to go to Ophir for gold, but they never sailed, for the ships were wrecked at Ezion-Geber. And then Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, said to Jehoshaphat, Let my servants go with your servants on the ships, but Jehoshaphat would not. And we'll talk more about that in Second Chronicles, where that's brought out in detail. And Jehoshaphat rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father. And then Jehoram, his son, reigned in his place. And Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel in Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. And he reigned two years over Israel. He did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father and the ways of his mother and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. Talk about an unholy trinity. Followed the influence of Jeroboam, his mother Jezebel, and his father Ahab. Talk about a slow learner. For he served Baal and worshipped him, and provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger, according to all that his father had done. And those final three verses are really an introduction to Second Kings, which continues the chronology which we'll head into next week.